Hello, this is Beyond the Bell with WASTA, Wisconsin's hub for professional development for anyone working in out-of-school time programs and youth-serving organizations. It's our mission to help you provide the highest quality care to children and their families. If you wish you had an extra tool going into programming to help guide behaviors in a productive way, wish you knew more about how to provide the whole family with support, or you want to enhance your own well-being, then this is the home for you. We know what it's like to feel like you never have enough time or resources to meet everyone's needs, and we're here to support you through the challenges. Stay tuned as we explore new ideas and strategies that you can use right away. Rachel Sharon, health educator with Marshfield Clinic Health Systems Center for Community Health Advancement and Wisconsin Out of School Time Alliance. We are excited you are listening today to our conversation with Dr. Jen Michaels. Dr. Michaels is a clinical psychologist, fellowship training director, and well-being leader at Marshfield Clinic Health System. She has developed programming and given presentations on many mental health wellness topics throughout the years. Dr. Michaels is joining us today to help us define burnout and identify what we might do about it. Along with the mental health crisis we are seeing in our youth, many are experiencing burnout. And actually, burnout has become such a common phenomenon that the term is often used in everyday speech, and we all apply it to different definitions and meanings. But we want to clarify what burnout is so that we can take action and brave the storm. Dr. Michaels, there seems to be a lot of similar and related terms to burnout, like compassion fatigue, overwhelm, just to name a few. How do you define burnout? Burnout has historically been defined uh, as an occupational condition where the job demands outweigh the job resources, uh, leading to the chronic exposure of the gap that exists between the two. So this has really been a topic that has been talked about a lot in recent years through the pandemic for teachers for after-school caregivers in, in those areas of our society and for healthcare workers. But it's really understood as an occupational uh, condition or phenomenon. I think about com- compassion fatigue as typically linked to emotional and sometimes cognitive exhaustion in relationships or in the relational world for the, with the people that we care for in our lives and, and the people that we're around. And so, you know, in many of these settings, school-based settings, after-school settings, healthcare, you're probably getting both. You know, and, and I think there's a, a real overlap in these concepts, burnout and compassion fatigue, one a little more occupational-based to those settings and one a little more relational-based. For most of us, we have all of that in our work settings, right? So you're saying it's not even necessarily overly important to sparse them out. We're, I mean, we're all being impacted. Exactly. And there's something going on here. Right, right. Burnout is is characterized by at least one of the following, typically more than one of the following issues. Emotional or cognitive exhaustion is one thing. Another aspect of burnout and compassion fatigue as well is depersonalization, this sense of detachment or kind of losing our resilience to be with people. And then a final aspect of burnout and, and even compassion fatigue as well is a decreased sense of personal accomplishment or even our purpose or role in, in something. And research really shows that the largest factor that precipitates burnout in American workers is the work environment itself. This isn't something that people where people are failing or they're not trying to, to do what's needed, but literally elements of our work environment and that 
discrepancy between work demands and work resources is precipitating burnout. So Dr. Michaels, what are some possible experiences somebody might go through when they have burnout? Yeah, so let's unpack each one of these kind of core areas that formulates our conceptualization of burnout. So first of all, when we think about emotional or cognitive exhaustion, this really derives from that constant time pressure that many people feel in in work and in school settings, the multitasking that is often required of us, along with insufficient resources to do all of that, that work. So it's this constant kind of juggling, along with a need to be continually present in the space, kind of, you know, cognitively engaged. And what we see is that people really end up having nothing else to give. They become depleted bit by bit over time, emotionally and cognitively, from the work experience itself. And this is what we become concerned about for you know, teachers and after-school caregivers, particularly in uh, working with our youth. Depersonalization is the next step of burnout, and many people think about it as a one leads to the next to the next. So once there's emotional and cognitive exhaustion, the next phase is sort of this depersonalization. And what I mean by that is this is the experience of becoming more negative, cynical, maybe even to some extent interpersonally cold or detached in one's interactions with other people. It can be children in a school setting. It can be our own family members. It can be colleagues. It could be patients that we're dealing with when you're thinking about healthcare settings and our staff that are around us. And this is the notion that work is somewhat hardened the individual, and that we lose some aspects of our compassion for for others. Many people think about the depersonalization stage as, as a defense against further emotional exhaustion. It's the way we almost protect ourselves by detaching and becoming a little more cynical and negative from becoming even more emotionally and cognitively depleted than we already are. So that's the second stage is this detachment, depersonalization. And then if burnout persists beyond that, many people lose a sense of personal accomplishment in their work. They start to lose their sense of feeling competent and and efficient and effective in their work. They start to develop negative views of their own abilities, not just even negative views of the setting that they're in, but themselves. And not only has one sort of lost empathy and some of their compassion, but they start to doubt their own self-worth, maybe their purpose, their value. What am I even doing here? And does any of this even matter? what I'm doing. So there's a, a sense of losing one's sense of self in it. So those are sort of the, the layers of burnout that many people will experience, one or the other, or in combination, stacking on top of each other. I think what you're saying is so important because I think in our culture, we tend to blame the victim or blame the individual. And you hear a lot of that rhetoric or if someone does need to change jobs or they're all of a sudden not performing the way maybe they did before, sometimes that lens gets really put on them. But what you're saying is there's some system things that maybe led to this or just the dynamics or that idea of scarcity that we sometimes are operating in situations where we don't have enough time or don't have enough resources. Mm-hmm. And that's really what starts it. And then a lot of times the people experiencing it get to a place where they are blaming themselves. So I highlight what you're saying because I think that gives us ideas and where we might start to support one another 
Exactly. I think there's a, been a big shift over time of moving the, the focus of attention off of the individual as somehow failing in some ways and placing responsibility and looking more directly at the work environment and thinking about what do we need to do in that setting such that people do not have this experience of burnout while they're trying to work and do their jobs. That burnout is a consequence of something. It's not an indication of a failure of an individual. Yeah. So even though we're saying that, what are some maybe specific things somebody might experience on the individual level that might cue them into advocating for themselves or for a coworker? Right. So there is some really uh, dramatic uh, data that came out in the last couple of years as they looked at healthcare workers and burnout and what neurologically happens in the brain, what, what our brains literally look like on burnout. If so to speak. So first of all, uh, you know, this is hard to think about, but it, it really is happening. When you uh, look at the brain of somebody who is burned out, you're most likely to see, first of all, a thinning of the prefrontal cortex. That's our frontal lobe of our brain. And what this uh, leads to is uh, functionally for the individual is often a decreased ability to focus to bring their attention to things. And it also impacts decision-making where people feel like their brain is foggy or sludgy. Even with simple things, they can't kind of arrive at a, at a decision in a more fluid way like they used to. A brain on burnout also shows decrease in the gray matter of the basal ganglia section of the brain from what we know is excess glutamate. It's a chemical in the brain. And this leads to decrease in fine motor skills. So people might even feel like they can't even uh, navigate their bodies in quite the same way when their brain is on burnout. We see an enlargement of the amygdala that's in the limbic section of the brain or the core section of the brain, and it is a thing that houses a lot of our emotions, such as anxiety and fear. So when you see the brain on burnout from a larger amygdala standpoint, we'll see increased emotional reactivity from individuals. They're quicker to react in a more intense way and with less emotion regulation than what you'd see when they're not burned out. And then finally, we see a shrinking of the hippocampus. And when the hippocampus decreases in size, short-term memory starts to uh, diminish as a first step, and then over time, long-term memory. So you'll hear workers say, like, I can't remember what I had for breakfast, or they can't remember, you know, different things that they were told. The, the, the stuff just doesn't stick as, as well in the brain, and therefore they're not converting short-term memories into long-term stores for later retrieval. So again, that brain feels like it's a bit on fog. So those are just the neurological impacts, you know, and not to scare you further, but there are physical mm -hmm. and psychological impacts. You know, people will talk about increased fatigue, headaches, GI upset, you know, changes in even their pain experience where they may no notice sort of joints and other experiences of pain are intensified. Big things are impacted by burnout, like insomnia, much higher rates of sleep problems, higher rates of mood and anxiety problems from burnout, all precipitated by that stress. And then you also see just occupational impact where people may have regret about their career. Burnout can really lead to suboptimal professional development. You know, employers are more likely to see increased absenteeism and employee turnover with sort of baseline reports of low morale and low engagement. So, you know, when you look across this, like literally the brain is impacted, our physical body is impacted, 
our psychological resources and, and things like mood, anxiety, and sleep are impacted, and then you really see that environmental impact in the occupational setting. This is a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about how hard this might be to hear all of this on some level, and at the same time, how empowering it is, because we're not crazy anymore, right? There's science to back up a lot of this, and you can see it in the pictures and the scans, and and so many people did, unfortunately, experience this the last Mm -hmm. few years, that if you're that person out there having that pain in your stomach or you're having that migraine, there's a way in to look at this now. I do think that the information is powerful, particularly the neurological information, because I think a lot of people have been feeling bad that their brains do not feel as solid and as uh, they feel a little sludgy compared to what they were and wondering, you know, is this my fault? If I just cope differently, if I did something different, am I weak? Am I whatnot? And, you know, I think what I want to convey is that this is a real phenomenon. This is a consequence of stressors and work environments where we're kind of caught in that in-between of demands versus res- versus low resources, and it isn't your fault. Yeah, and if anyone hears one line from our podcast today, it would be that, right? It's not your fault. Exactly. And to let that sink in. So you talked about these different layers of burnout before, and knowing that sometimes it can get to that point where we're just shutting down. What do you recommend as just tiny, reasonable, feasible ways to start back up, to get ourselves up and moving again, so to speak? Sure. So, you know, as I've said with other podcasts that that we've done, you know, a lot of this always starts with awareness, right? So hopefully today by talking about this, this topic, we're helping people conceptualize a bit of what might be happening to them and having a way to frame that in the mind. If people can see some of their experiences through the lens of burnout, that then affords an opportunity to engage it directly. So the first first things first is self-monitoring for this, self-monitoring for the signs and symptoms of burnout and uh, self-monitoring our stress level becomes a critical first step. We have to bring awareness to that to be able to know when we've got to engage in a strategy for stress reduction. The, the next step of this is creating an intentional plan of steps to take to make it different. And I would say that the number one thing that is really needed on an individual level for navigating a burnout is recovery time. Recovery time becomes essential. And doing that in a, a deliberate way that really affords good opportunities for detachment. So again, recovery time often through our phones or through, you know, just mindless TV watching may not provide the same type of benefits as spending a little bit of time in nature. Uh, So, you know, there's an importance of being thoughtful about how you engage recovery time and whether it's really affording good, good benefits. I think ultimately an analysis of, of thinking about now, what can I control? What can I control in my environment maybe recognizing what you can't control, but leaning into the factors you can control with making differences in some of your daily routine or, or your, daily, your daily life. A big part of this as well is advocacy and talking about this directly with peers and with people in our work environment, administrators and otherwise. When we're private about this or when we just think it's our own weakness or failure, it cuts into 
our workplaces having an understanding of what's happening and problem solving along with us for solutions. So there are individual things we can do in terms of our awareness and setting up deliberate deliberate recovery time, but ultimately we've also have to engage our work settings to think about how the settings can be made different such that we have a fighting chance of not always being in burnout mode. I love the term recovery time because if we put it into ter- in medical terms and somebody has a major surgery, we don't expect them to just go walking out the doors and acting like everything is normal and they can do everything like they did the day before. And so if someone's actually been through and experienced true burnout, we need that downtime. We heal. Exactly. And, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'm happy to sort of personally disclose on this. I've, I've had a couple of phases of fairly significant burnout over the last few years through the pandemic, you know, where I just felt incredibly emotionally and cognitively depleted. And one of the, and during one of the phases, you know, in thinking about, you know, what I was, was I going to do to revive myself? I initiated an activity of coming home from work and, intentionally forcing myself to just go out for a 10 to 15 minute walk around our property. And we have a few acres and some a few mowed paths that take us through a little prairie area and then out to uh, an area where there's a bit of water. And literally that daily activity of going with my dog around the small loops of property and then out to a chair to sit by the edge of water and just sit for a bit had a tremendous you know, benefit in terms of that recovery time, just the downtime. It was an infusion each day in uh, reviving myself a bit and shaking off the day. So that's that's one example that I might share of awareness, first of all, and then implementing a, a bit of a plan to literally engage the recovery time. And I think that's such a helpful and hopeful example because it's not earth shattering. It's not, I'm going to get up and run a marathon. It's something that you can do outside of your door, wherever that would be. Mm -hmm. It's taking that time to look up at the sunshine or look at that stream that's nearby, whatever that might be for all of you listening. That's how we slowly get up and get moving and start to advocate for ourselves. And we just start showing up just a little bit at a time. Exactly. And I think for all of us, we need to find what are our main things, you know, that have potency to revive us. I would ask people to think about nature as being uh, one of the most dominant areas across humanity that seems to pay tremendous dividends quite quickly. Just time in nature, whether that's exercising or it's literally just sitting in nature and just taking it in. Um, Music is another area that has a lot of reviving qualities to it. And so that's another direction to go in. And probably the third leg on the stool of the biggest areas that tend to help us revive and are great areas to pivot to for this recovery uh, time are social connections. And there may be key people in your life that are just really good for that, for you, that you can literally feel sort of you come back into yourself and, and your spirit revive in the wake of it. Engaging the recovery time in these deliberate ways may give us enough energy to then go back into our settings and talk about this openly and engage our our work settings to try to make it different such that we're not so depleted over time. It may give us enough fuel to engage 
sort of what's broken really in the source of burnout for many people and trying to modify those settings such that we don't have to do so much on the back end for recovery. Those three legs of the stool are so helpful. And I think it's pieces that we can all, whether we're in the middle of a big city, we're in the middle of a country, there's some piece of nature we can tap into. There's there's that, that small part of ourselves. I often think about, have you ever been asked one of those questions, like think back in childhood of, you know, one of your most memorable, warm, fuzzy experiences and how if you listen to a group full of people, it's often related to that nature piece or exactly. that connection to someone else. And so even just recalling some of those things and bringing mm-hmm. that into present, how that might help someone just ever so slightly if they're experiencing burnout, for sure. So how else can we convince ourselves and others that we do have agency and some level of control in what happens? This is a difficult question because I think in the area of burnout and what many people are experiencing in their work environments, there's a lot of helplessness. People feel a lot of helplessness with how to navigate this. But I'm hoping that by talking about this today, the, the idea of burnout, what it is, how it might look or how you might identify it in yourselves, it gives us an opportunity to frame it in our minds of what is happening with us and take it out of the the self-criticism arena, the personal fault arena, and to understand a phenomenon that then offers us some some ways that we might be able to pivot ourselves to offer ourselves recovery time. But also in it, it gives us a sense of awareness of what we maybe can control that's in our own individual um, realm, but also what we can't control that may be in work environments that we cannot influence fully in the way that we would want to. And just that awareness of all of that together offers some empowerment that may help us be less critical of ourselves and set boundaries kind of on what we're going to engage, what we're not going to engage, what is ours, what isn't ours to navigate in our daily lives. So Dr. Michaels, we've gone over so much and in some ways I think this is a topic that we could cover again and again and keep coming back to. It's so complicated and individualized, but I'm wondering if somebody out there is wondering, maybe I am starting to experience some burnout, or maybe they're starting to wonder if one of their colleagues is experiencing it. What's one question or one thing they could be asking themselves to start that self-discovery piece? Yeah, that's a great question. I I really think it starts with just a simple self-inquiry or inquiry with a peer or a friend. And it probably as simple as saying, asking oneself or asking of someone else, how am I feeling? And then lending some time to really think about it. Think about it in the layers as a way to begin to unpack it. So I think that's where we leave all of you. Thank you for listening in. We hope you leave today with a few more tools in your toolbox. Be sure to visit our website and sign up for our emails where we share information about all of our upcoming professional development opportunities.